Welcome back to the Vatican Briefing, National Catholic Reporters podcast covering Pope Francis, the Vatican, and the big decisions facing the global Catholic Church. I'm Joshua McElwee, the Reporters News Editor. And hello, I'm Christopher White, the Reporters Vatican Correspondent. We're taking up a different format this week for a special episode as Chris interviewed Anne Barrett Doyle, who has been involved in tracking clergy sexual abuse in the Catholic Church for decades and is the co-director of bishopaccountability.org. Listeners will remember our episode last month featuring Archbishop Charles Shakluna, one of the Catholic Church's leading abuse investigators. We spoke with the Archbishop about the legacy of Pope Francis's first-of-its-kind Vatican Summit in February 2019 on clergy abuse. That's right, Josh. Uh, Anne Barrett Doyle has been here in, in Rome for several press conferences organized around the five-year anniversary of Pope Francis's 2019 Summit on Abuse, and she reached out specifically because she wanted to offer her perspective on that summit and to offer a broader assessment of where Pope Francis has moved on, on abuse and where she thinks he's fallen short. And so this is a wide-ranging conversation. It's quite serious. The nature of this topic is, of course, you know, the most serious issue facing the Catholic Church, many people would argue. Because of that, we're going to dedicate a full episode to the conversation, both to hear what Anne has to say and then to begin to unpack that a bit. Yeah, Chris. So we're going to feature Anne's interview in full, and then we'll come back to discuss some of what she said to offer our context and analysis. As a heads up to listeners, there are some Vatican figures and entities that Anne references in her interview. Don't worry, Chris and I are going to come back after the interview to have a discussion together and to further discuss Pope Francis's legacy on clergy sexual abuse. So after the music, we'll be back with Chris's interview with Anne Barrett Doyle, co-director of bishopaccountability.org. And welcome back to Rome and to the Vatican Briefing Podcast. Thanks, Chris. I'm delighted to be with you. You are the co-director of Bishop Accountability. Yes. You all have been tracking clergy abuse since 2003, so over 20 years. And let's start with just how you got involved in this work to begin with. I got involved just as a Catholic mother who spontaneously <laughs> began organizing protests in front of the cathedral when the Boston Globe first started publishing the memos of Cardinal Law to the priest we now realize was a pedophile, John Gagan. Um, tender memos, solicitous memos. I just could not believe it. So I began just spontaneously doing something I had never done before, which is saying to fellow Catholics, we have to protest. We have to change this church. In the In the course of that, I met a document management expert named Terry McKernan, another Catholic parent from another Boston suburb. And Terry really quickly realized that the most important long-term thing we could do was to preserve the documents that were being forced out of the secret archives of the Boston Archdiocese. This had never happened in the history of the Catholic Church, and we were getting an inside glimpse not only of the shocking lenience that they showed towards child molesters, but also just how they managed themselves. It was the first unfiltered internal revelation about how the Catholic Church operates. But of course, the important thing was we were understanding how the cover-up happens 
So Terry said, let's start, you know, these are public information now, but they're all sitting in a courthouse. He would go to the Suffolk County courthouse and pay five cents per page to copy these darn things. And then we realized, or he realized that we had to start uh, an online archive. And that's how Bishop Accountability got started. I joined him in that. And uh, then we added the online priest database. This is just publicly accused priests where the sources are mainstream sources, court documents, um, reputable newspapers. We now have in our U.S. database more than 7,800 publicly accused priests just in the United States. And we have databases from other countries as well. Yeah, Bishop Accountability is a tremendous resource and a trove of information, especially for we reporters. That's good. We utilize it frequently. I want to just ask you briefly, you mentioned getting involved because of the, the fallout after the spotlight investigations in Boston. We're coming up on the uh, very likely soon resignation of Cardinal O'Malley of Boston, who turns 80 this summer. He's one of the Pope's top advisors on abuse. He's been the, the head of the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors, the entity started by Pope Francis. He was brought in to clean house and set, you know, start a new page and turn a chapter on abuse. How would you assess his legacy on safeguarding? I think it's been mixed at best. He was very effective at basically quelling the scandal in Boston, but he has not been someone who has advanced transparency in the Boston Archdiocese. 40,000 pages of documents came out before he came. Not one additional document has been published about an abuser. It took him until 2011 to post a list of accused Boston priests And even there, he omitted, um, by his own admission, 91 Boston Archdiocesan priests who had been accused but who hadn't yet been publicly identified. So I would say that Cardinal O'Malley has been brilliant on behalf of the church, but basically because he accomplished what he was assigned to do, which was to suppress the scandal in Boston. It has really died down there. That has not done victims any favors whatsoever. No, you're here in Rome to mark the five-year anniversary of Pope Francis's major abuse summit that took place in 2019. It brought together all the heads of bishops' conferences from around the world to effectively get on the same page on safeguarding. I remember being in the square the eve of the summit with you. This was soon after the fallout of now former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, and you and your colleagues sort of warned that there were many more McCarricks out there. Yes. Now, let's start with the positives. What would you say that summit did accomplish? The number one thing it did, it was a massive public awareness building all over the world. There were as many journalists there as might have been at the Papal Conclave in 2013, and they went back home and published stories. So I think it was a massive consciousness raising. Well, we can talk in a minute about positive changes, constructive changes that were made to canon law as a result of the summit. I think one of the major outcomes that the church points to is vos estus lux mundi, you are the yes. light of the world, which is you know the, the major law that came out a few months after the summit that for the first time outlined the steps for holding bishops accountable for abuse and cover-up. And that was adopted first at Experimentum, and then just last year, it was sort of enshrined into the church's code of canon law. Now, th- this law relies on bishops 
to investigate other bishops who have been accused of abuse, which has been the subject of a lot of criticism. How would you assess this law? I mean, for many people, this is considered the Pope's major reform effort on abuse. Yes, I don't think we'll see anything else coming out of Pope Francis, any more anti-abuse legislation. I think Vosestus Lux Mundi is sort of his signature anti-abuse law, and its impact has been insignificant as far as we can tell. It resembles the laws... (laughs) very much before Vosestis, which is it is cloaked in secrecy. We have no idea how many bishops have been investigated under Vosestis. Bishop Accountability tries to count them, but the information is so vague. We've got about 40 or 50 on our list. Half of them have been exonerated. We don't see that, you know, we were led to believe that the laicization of now ex-Cardinal McCarrick um, would be a precedent that it was as if the Pope was saying, you see, this is what's going to happen to bishops who sexually abuse children or adults. They are going to be punished to the fullest force that's capable. Not one bishop has suffered that punishment under Vosestis. Not one. There have been admitted abusers who've gotten soft landings. Nobody has lost his title. A few have had to step down from their administrative posts as heads of diocese, but um, the sanctions have been light. And as far as we can tell, very few bishops have even been investigated under this law. Yesterday in Rome, we're speaking now on February 14th, Ash Wednesday, Valentine's Day, but Bishop Accountability held a press conference uh, outlining some of these cases that, you know, you've just described as either being light sentences or ignored altogether. We certainly don't have time to go through all of them, but what would you point to as some of the, the most egregious offenses of Vosestis either being ignored or not implemented at all? The worst aspect of what's happened in the last five years is that Vosestis ostensibly was going to ensure an accountability process, but the Pope has proceeded to actively undermine his own effort by openly supporting even bishops who've admitted abuse. And, um, He also has showed no hesitation to honor bishops with a public record of cover-up, starting with the now head of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, Archbishop, now Cardinal Victor Fernandez from Argentina, a close collaborator of the Pope, someone well-known to the Pope. The Pope chose Archbishop Fernandez despite a publicly available record of protecting abusers in his home archdiocese. This man now runs the department that oversees allegations against accused priests from all over the world. That is the Pope sending a signal. And this is what the Pope has done that puzzles me so much and breaks my heart, really, as somebody who wants the church to get it right. He has gone out of his way to signal support for accused bishops. Another Argentine bishop, Gustavo Zanqueta, has been criminally convicted for sexually abusing two seminarians. While he was being prosecuted, the Pope publicly hired him back to his old post in, in the Vatican as if to say, I believe in this man. Now, if the Pope balanced that with many public statements in support of victims in individual cases, I could say, okay, sometimes he publicly sides with victims. Sometimes he publicly sides with the accused. He's not on record ever publicly denouncing a priest or bishop in an individual case and standing by upholding the victim. A a few weeks ago on this podcast, 
my co-host Josh Mackey and I interviewed Archbishop Charles Shikluna, one of the church's lead investigators on abuse. We were inside the Vatican's Dicastery for the Doctrine of Faith, which is, of course, led by Cardinal Fernandez. And one of the things that Archbishop Shikluna would say, and does say, thinking back on the five years since this summit, is that it's helped change the culture. That there's a law that, you know, sometimes, you know, church leaders have been slow to adapt, but it's begun to change the culture. And that there are people, you know, like Cardinal Fernandez, who would say, I, I, I've made a mistake and I've learned from that. You know, how would you respond to that, to the charge that this law, you know, is slowly changing the culture? I would say when children are being sexually assaulted, you don't patiently wait for change in culture. What if in the civil rights movement, we had laws that weren't being enforced to protect minorities, and we just patiently waited for a change in culture rather than enforcing those laws? How about instead they put in place tough laws, laws like in the U.S., there is at least a nominal zero tolerance law, which says a priest found guilty by the church of a single allegation of child sexual abuse must be removed permanently from ministry. That is minimal. What people don't realize is that under universal canon law, a bishop can still reinstate a known child molester to ministry if he feels that the priest has repented and will no longer be a cause for scandal. I want to pause and have people, your listeners, take that in. This is an institution with a duty of care to tens of millions of people around the world, and they still say under their internal law that it is okay for a child molester to be a priest. Let's not be grateful for small favors. I want to talk about the Pope's Abuse Commission, uh, which he launched in 2013, the first year of his papacy. And you've been critical of the decision to place that body inside the Vatican's doctrinal office. And you've also been critical of the leadership of the commission. You know, when it was established in 2013, the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors was meant to be the church's premier entity for advising the Pope on safeguarding policy, working with victims, and preventing abuse. Eleven years later, you know, what's the verdict on how it's going? Well, the Pontifical Commission has been, its reputation has been hurt considerably by its very public defections of two survivors, uh, Pete Saunders and Mary Collins from Ireland, and then by Hans Zollner, the Jesuit. They have all said, frankly, this isn't working. I think there are probably good people on the commission. I know there are, but they have an impossible remit. They're supposed to sort of be monitoring the church's progress in safeguarding without being allowed to (laughs) probe individual cases. That's laughably impossible. The truth only comes out in the individual cases. Literally, the devil is in those details. If they don't have access to individual cases, but they're still supposed to make informed judgments about how a diocese is doing, that's like a home inspector being asked to be assessed to the soundness of a home without being allowed to look at the wiring (laughs) or the plumbing. How are they supposed to do that? From the outside, from a facade? I think the commission has been exploited by the Vatican to make them look like they're being accountable to a semi-outside body, which it isn't. And um, I think the commission has lost credibility. I will say, however, that their very powerful statement right before the Senate, number one, there were two individual statements. One was saying, hey, people attending the Synod, you better include abuse. 
which didn't happen, unfortunately. But I really appreciated them making that statement. And the second thing was their very powerful statement in support of the victims of the former Jesuit Marco Rupnik. That was as powerful a thing as that has ever come out of that commission, and I appreciated that. There is, in the Senate Synthesis Report, a few mentions of, of abuse, particularly making the practical suggestion that not just priests or bishops judge these cases of abuse. It specifically says there's an issue with some victims, you know, being judged by someone that, you know, they refer to once as father. You know, that, that's the sort of language that's in the Synthesis Report. I'm curious, you know, had you been in the room in the Synod, or, you know, if you were at a local parish taking part in a Synod listening session, what sort of practical guidance would you advise on this front? Well, I found that report, uh, I was astonished at how little discussion of abuse was at that report. It really should have been front and center. There is no more important issue in the worldwide Catholic Church than to uh, stop being an unsafe place for children. What would I advise? I would advise that all allegations be reported to civil authorities, except in those very few countries where it is unsafe perhaps to do so. I think the church has proven that it inevitably will be tempted to preserve the priesthood of the priest at the expense of the victim. It's an institution of human beings, and the natural instinct is to still to protect its reputation. I think in the United States, insofar as you have victims liaison working for different dioceses, when they're off-site, you know, not in the chancery, when the people have a certain degree of autonomy, I think victims can get a lot of relief and sometimes pathways to justice and reparations through that. So, and absolutely, their cases should be judged by, I would say, lay people, not by clerics. That's, that's at a minimum. And we're, we're speaking in February of 2024. Next month will mark 11 years of Pope Francis as Pope. He's 87 years old. He's in declining health. We don't know when. Eventually, though, cardinals from around the world will be here in Rome to elect a new pope. What do you want them to talk about when it comes to abuse in those meetings leading up to the conclave? How much should abuse be on the radar of these roughly 120 men from around the world who will choose the next leader of the Catholic Church? Well, what I believe will happen and what I believe should happen are two very different things. But um, what should happen is that they should optimize for a pope who will have the internal determination uh, that Pope Francis sadly lacked to really change canon law so that it is effective in fighting abuse and fighting cover-up. That should be an absolute um, indispensable criterion for whomever they choose. I do not believe that will happen because I think that the culture really has not changed. And uh, I think the church will eventually change because I'm a person of faith, I'm a Catholic, and I think eventually it will change, but it's going to be from the outside. It's going to be, you know, we, we need to keep the pressure on, encourage prosecutors, encourage legislators, encourage journalists to continue to uphold the rights of victims and expose uh, the ongoing abuse and cover-up in the church. Andrea Doyle of Bishop Accountability, thank you for joining us on the Vatican Briefing. I was really delighted to be here. Thanks, Chris.
We're so grateful to Anne Barrett Doyle for joining us today on the Vatican Briefing. She has undertaken so many decades of work on this issue, on, on clergy sexual abuse. It's really great to hear her perspective. We're so grateful for her taking the time to speak with us. I found it really valuable to hear her perspective on areas, especially where Francis has done well on confronting clergy sexual abuse, and also where he has fallen short. I thought it was particularly helpful to hear some of her background on the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors. This is the group that Pope Francis created in 2013, a first-of-its-kind group, really, to give the Pope direct consultation and direct help on confronting clergy sexual abuse, and originally kind of intended to help him create norms or kind of procedures in, in order to make sure the church is protecting minors. But unfortunately, that group has kind of had some fits and starts. In the beginning, it, it did receive a lot of laudatory praise in terms of the work it was doing, but then there were the resignation of two of the abuse survivors on the group, uh, Peter Saunders and Marie Collins. Uh, readers at National Catholic Reporter will know that we covered uh, Marie Collins' time on the commission quite closely. I interviewed her many times about her frustrations and what she had hoped the commission would be and then what it kind of turned into, which was more of an educational body and less of a policy-making body. More recently, the Jesuit priest Father Hans Zollner also decided to resign from the commission. And there's now questions about kind of what its direction is, what are they doing, what are they focusing on, and, and kind of where that commission goes from here. Josh, she talked about the commission and its leadership. Of course, Cardinal Sean O'Malley has been the, the head of that commission since the very beginning of it in 2013. And, you know, he, he wears many hats in the church. Uh, so he's the Archbishop of Boston, but of course, he's frequently in Rome for his meetings with the commission and also as the, the Pope's cardinal advisors and the, the C9, uh, where this really is his issue. And I, I think it's fair to say on this front, you know, he's really been willing to challenge the Pope, particularly if we think back to the, the situation in, in Chile. You know, it was Cardinal O'Malley that at that time stood up and, and spoke on behalf of, of victims uh, when they felt like they were not being heard there. And I think what we heard from Anne is, is frustration, you know, as someone who has been in Boston since the, the crisis first erupted there in 2002. From her perspective, she sees him as someone that was kind of brought in to replace Cardinal Law, who had been responsible for covering up abuse moving priests that had committed abuse and moving them around. And Cardinal Sean is brought in to, to clean house. And I, from Anne's perspective, it seems to have been, you know, a, a bureaucratic response. And I think she, she sees him as sort of a, a company man. That is not the perspective that everyone would have of O'Malley. I know many victims would laud the, the time and commitment that O'Malley has uh, given them and really brought real credibility uh, on this issue. So I think depending on who you speak with, you're going to get two different perspectives there. You know, following my interview with Anne, we asked the Boston Archdiocese about her assessment of Cardinal O'Malley's tenure. And in a statement to the Vatican briefing, the Archdiocese said O'Malley had, quote, consistently demonstrated a commitment to be open, receptive, and supportive of survivors. Statement said that under O'Malley's leadership, the Boston Archdiocese was among the first to publish a list of credibly accused clergy and to pay for ongoing psychological help for survivors. They continued, quote, the Cardinal has implemented significant reforms and procedures to safeguard children, hold offenders accountable, support survivors, and provide for healing. We'll include a full link to that statement, uh, which is a bit more extensive in the episode's show notes. Yeah, thank you, Chris. And there's a few other individuals in particular that Anne mentioned in your interview, and I'll just kind of go through some of those cases and what we know of the facts. 
Uh, one of those individuals is Cardinal Victor Fernandez, who is an Argentine theologian and close collaborator of Pope Francis, who the Pope appointed as the head of the Vatican's powerful doctrinal office in July 2023. Fernandez has admitted mistakes in how he handled a 2019 case of a priest accused of abuse while he was serving as the Archbishop of La Plata in Argentina. Survivors have claimed that Fernandez kept the priest in ministry, despite there being some accusations of abuse. Fernandez has disputed that claim. He said he opened a canonical case as soon as the testimonies came in, as soon as he was able to under canon law. But Fernandez also told the AP, the Associated Press, in July 2023, quote, Today I would certainly act very differently, and certainly my performance was insufficient, end quote. Fernandez attributed the mistake to being a newer bishop and kind of still learning the procedures. He was appointed a bishop in 2018, but he had come from a long uh, career as a theologian and in serving as the rector of the main Catholic University in Buenos Aires. Another figure that Anne mentioned is another Argentine bishop named Gustavo Zanqueta, who initially resigned from the leadership of the Diocese of Oran in 2017, at the time thought to be over disputes about his leadership style. Later that year, Francis appointed Zanqueta to come to Rome to serve for the Vatican office that is kind of the, the official treasury of the Catholic Church. In January 2019, the Vatican announced Zanqueta had been suspended from that role due to as yet unspecified allegations of abuse. And in March 2022, Zanqueta was convicted in an Argentine court for sexual abuse of two former seminarians. The Vatican has not really commented on Zanqueta's case in some time. In 2019, as some of this was coming forward, Francis told a journalist that he had specifically asked the doctrinal office to start a proceeding over the allegations of abuse by Zanqueta. After the Argentine trial, after the civil case, it's not clear really if that proceeding is still ongoing. We reached out to the Vatican's press office to ask if they had any comment about the status of Zanqueta's canonical case of the possible case at a church tribunal. Uh, we're waiting for a possible update at the time of this recording. If we get one, we'll include it into this episode show notes. We're here, Josh, uh, you know, marking the five-year anniversary of the Abuse Summit. And, you know, while some of this interview was looking back, I think it's important to remember that this is still very much an issue front and center, uh, very much so today in Rome on February 21st, the day that we're recording this. There was a press conference where two people connected with Father Marco Rupnik's case for the first time, uh, you know, face the press uh, and reveal their, their identities. This is a case, of course, that Anne Barrett Doyle has referenced. Father Marco Rubnik is a former Jesuit priest, and he was part of this community in Rome, the Cencio Aletti community of ecumenism and, and artistry, and multiple women that were a part of that community have come forward and accused him both of sexual and spiritual abuse. The Jesuits last year kicked him out of the order, and back in October, at the end of the Vatican's uh, Synod on Synodality, the first session, Pope Francis had asked that the case be reopened. We learned from the Vatican today, in responding to this press conference here in Rome, that they're still just gathering uh, the latest bits of evidence on this case, that it is proceeding ahead. But, you know, one of the victim's lawyers said that, you know, even victims and their lawyers are not sure how the Vatican's dicastery will proceed because those proceedings are secret, even even to the victims. So it's certainly something that we'll be monitoring uh, at the National Catholic Reporter. This case, I think, is very much of concern to so many people because, one, he was, of course, so very prominent as an artist. 
but also because of his connections to the Jesuits and you know, the allegations that because both the head of the Vatican's Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith at the time was a Jesuit uh, and the Pope was a Jesuit, that uh, perhaps he received special treatment. Francis, of course, has denied that he's intervened in the case in any sort of favorable way. Yeah, thank you, Chris, and thank you to our listeners. We know that there's a, a lot to comprehend here and different facts and figures and names, and we wanted to treat the issue as seriously as we could with as much delicacy and sensitivity both to the victims uh, involved and to the cases that are still ongoing. We really appreciate you hanging with us and enjoying this episode with us. I think this is a good place to wrap it up for this week. You can be sure that we'll be following developments in terms of Pope Francis's efforts on clergy sexual abuse at our website, ncronline.org. Please continue to follow the Vatican Briefing. We're recording on a more regular schedule. You can look forward to episodes in your feeds about every other week. In the meantime, you can find our show notes and all of our work at National Catholic Reporter, again at ncronline.org. And please, don't forget to click subscribe so you're notified every time we have a new episode. Until next time, you've been briefed. The Vatican Briefing is a production of National Catholic Reporter. John Grasso is your executive producer. Joshua McAlee and Christopher White are your producers and hosts. The editing was done by Angie Von Slaughter in conjunction with David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Today's music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. This podcast and NCR's future media initiative are made possible in part by the generosity of Bill and Jean Buchanan.